Well, we do come again to the beginning of Paul's letter. It began a few weeks ago to preach through this great letter. And this is where he tells the believers in Colossians at the very outset of his letter how it is he's praying for them. Last week we looked at verses 3 through 8 where Paul expresses godly thanksgiving in which he really magnifies and multiplies the gospel power of the triune God with what he says in verses 3 to 8. And then in verses 9 to 14, his godly thanksgiving moves into godly request making. And this is going to be our focus this morning in verses 9 to 14. But as I read the text, I want to go ahead and start in verse 3 uh, just to give us a flavor of the context again. So let's hear God's powerful and eternal word beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer as we seek his help. O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, your voice is powerful and it's full of majesty. And even as the psalmist prayed, please make us to know your ways and teach us your path. Lead us in your truth and teach us for you are the salvation. And please also search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Please help me to simply be a mouthpiece for what you have revealed, that you might be glorified and your purposes in all of our lives furthered. And we trust you to do this for your glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Well, many years ago, when I was in college, back in the dark ages, uh, when I was in college, I was involved, I came to church as a freshman, I was a senior in high school, and during college, for a period of time, I was involved with a campus ministry. And in one of our meetings, the leader of that campus ministry, I don't remember his name, uh, but he shared a story as he had been seeking God's will for a significant job decision that he had to make that was going to end up taking him out of the area. 
But he shared the story of how he came to decide uh, what God's will was, or maybe to discern what he believed was God's will regarding what it was he was supposed to do. And he shared the story that he was basically looking at two different job opportunities, two different companies that he was considering, and he was praying fervently for God to make his will clear regarding which of these he was supposed to take. And it came down to the day that he had to make a decision, and he still didn't know what he was going to do. And so he continued to pray fervently that God would make his will clear. And he was sitting in class on that particular day. He was still, I think he was a graduate student. He's sitting in class, and he had to make a decision that day. And so even as the class is going on, the professor's lecturing, he's praying, God, make your will clear, make your will clear. And as he prays that, he opens his eyes, he looks down at the pen that he's holding, and on the pen is the name of one of those companies. And he said, that's it. That's God's will. And I don't remember all the details of the story, but I do remember him reflecting on that was how he discerned God's will, because he had a pen that had the name of one of the companies on it. Now I ask you the question, was that God's will? Well, maybe. We don't ultimately know. But it stood out in my mind. That was so many years ago. It stood out in my mind as one way that people often, Christians often, seek to discern God's will. With some kind of something or other, like a name of a company on a pen, that seems to be an indication of God's will. Now, again, it may or may not have been God's will for him to end up taking the job that he took, but in determining to seek God's will in that way, there's, there's just no biblical foundation for that. There's no biblical foundation whatsoever. Now, of course, some of you might be thinking about Gideon in the Old Testament in Judges chapter 6 and how he held out a fleece to try to understand God's will. There's a lot going on in that story, but that is not commended as a way to discern God's will. Gideon's faith was very weak, and God had already told him what to do, and he was wavering in being obedient in trust to what God had called him to do. So it's not given as a means of discerning God's will. But that question often daunts us, doesn't it? And we think about those things in a lot of different categories in our lives. What is God's will? And you might ask that question even today. What is God's will for my life? You might be thinking of that in a general way. You might be thinking of it in particular ways with regard to any number of things, job choices, where you're going to live, relationship choices, or on down the line. What is God's will for your life? And and then, of course, the follow-up question is, well, how do you find God's will? How do you discern God's will? Well, the text that we're going to look at this morning, verses 9 to 14 of Colossians 1, is one of the places where this question gets answered for us of how to know God's will. And the big idea that we see in this passage as we begin to work through it, the central truth is this, as it's reflected in Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Here it is. Godly prayer passionately seeks God's will for God's people. Godly prayer, as evidenced or or exemplified in Paul's life, passionately seeks God's will for God's people. And that's what we find here in verses 9 through 14. 
Now, Paul's prayer here, his prayer wish, we might call it, as he's expressing this by way of his burden and passion for the Colossians, it really involves two different parts. First, there is a request, and then there is a purpose for that request. And these are the two parts of Paul's prayer that we find in verses 9 to 14. One request, one purpose, and these express his burden. They express his passion uh, for God's will to be realized in God's people. And Lord willing, before we're done, hopefully we'll see some of the connections of how this plays out in our own lives as it concerns this matter of God's will. So first of all, we see this first part in verse 9, his one request, and we can summarize it this way with some of the words from the text, that you may be filled with the knowledge of God. As he is opening this letter to the Colossian believers, and as this is God's word for every believer, he wills for us to be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's at the heart of Paul's request. So see there in verse 9. He says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, Paul is praying for the believers' minds, for their, for their whole being, their heart their, that encompasses their mind to be filled which means to be consumed, to be uh, controlled by, to be preoccupied with the knowledge of God's will. And as he's speaking of God's will here, he's not talking here about individualized, personalized ways that we often think of God's will. Some of the things I, I mentioned just a few moments ago. For instance, what, what is God's will for my career? What is God's will for who I should marry or where I should go to school or whether I should go to school or whether I should move here or move there or buy this thing or buy that thing? That's not what Paul is talking about here when he references God's will. Those, of course, all of those things, many other things we could think of are very legitimate, reasonable things to consider. And there are, there are ways in which God would have us to seek him for wisdom and guidance and, and the counsel of others as we strive to make uh, responsible and faithful decisions in all those kinds of an area, all, all those kinds of areas. But that's not what Paul is speaking of here regarding God's will. What he means, rather, by the knowledge of God's will is God's design, his purpose, and his intentions in the fullness of his saving, redeeming work in Jesus Christ. He's talking about God's design, purpose, and intentions in the fullness of his saving, redeeming work in Jesus Christ. So often our own considerations of God's will for our lives is just that. It's very narrowly focused on our own lives and and very small in focus and very self-oriented in its focus. We're not often thinking of the big picture of God's saving work and purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is speaking about, the big picture of God's will in Christ. Paul is praying for God's people. And this lets us into the heart of God for his people. If you are one of God's people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is his big will for you. 
that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, which means to have the fullest possible knowledge and assurance of all of God's purposes that he has designed and accomplished and brought to bear in your life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is Paul's passion because it's God's passion for us to know the fullness and the assurance of all of his purposes for us in Christ. And so everything else that Paul is going to go on to address throughout his letter deals with this concern of God's will and his work in Christ. The, The substance of it, the fullness of it, the sufficiency of it, the implications of it, that encompasses all that he shares throughout his letter. And, and, and that ultimately trickles down to what that means in the daily lives of we who are God's people. The fullness of his saving and redeeming work in Jesus Christ. That is the will of God that God wills for us to come to the full knowledge and assurance of. And so this is also what Paul's co-worker Epaphras, you heard him made reference to there a few verses before uh, the section that we're looking at, but this was what he was passionate for as well. In fact, if you go over to chapter 4, near the end of the letter, listen to what Paul says of Epaphras in verses 12 and 13. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, he was from Colossae, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, now listen to this, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, here it is, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. It's the very same will that, uh, of God that Paul is speaking of in chapter 1. And he's affirming and he's, he's rejoicing that Epaphras is, is struggling both in prayer and in labor beyond prayer that God's people would stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. Now, there's other places throughout Paul's other letters where he speaks in these terms as well. One of those is in Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians is very much a, a companion letter with Colossians, if you will. But over in Ephesians chapter 1, just a few pages before where we're at in Colossians 1, Look at what Paul says in verses 9 through 11, making reference to part of the uh, full spiritual blessings that God has given his people in Christ. He says in verse 9 that he is also making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you see how he's talking about the eternal plan and purpose and design of God and the, the redemption and the salvation that he has brought about in the Lord Jesus Christ and where all of that is pointing to, to the uniting of things in heaven and things on earth. This is all encompassing the knowledge of God's will that he intends his people to know and to be assured of and to be strengthened in. Over in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Ephesians, listen to what Paul says in verses 15 to 17 and see how this intersects with the things we're seeing. 
He says, verse 15 of chapter 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand His will, His work in Christ, and all of the implications that flow from that, and all of His blessings, and all of His commands, and all of His purposes. Well, if we come back to Colossians chapter 1 then, notice what Paul goes on to say in his request there in verse 9, when he says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, and then he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What is it that he's talking about there? All spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, he's talking about the wisdom and the understanding that is spiritual. I know I just reworded kind of what he said, but that's what he's making the point of. And when he uses that term spiritual, and Tim talked about this a little bit in equipping hour this morning as well, he's referring to that which pertains to the Holy Spirit, to that which encompasses the the person and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, when Paul says to all spiritual wisdom and understanding, he's talking about that wisdom and understanding that comes from the Spirit of God. And this is contrasted with all that would be identified as worldly, fleshly, man-made wisdom and understanding. This is rather spiritual wisdom and understanding that God has given in Christ, through His Spirit, now revealed in His Word. That's what he is talking about, the wisdom and the understanding that comes from the Spirit. And wisdom really has to do with with skill for living in a way that is in accordance with what God has designed, and understanding is bound up within that. Cognitive, spirit-empowered, spirit-given understanding according to God's word of what he has revealed, what he by what he reveals, and how we are to live in light of that. That's what Paul is talking about. And so listen to what Paul is going to go on to say in chapter 2 of Colossians, verses 1 to 3. Because again, what he's introducing here in how he's praying for the Colossians, he's going to continue to develop these themes and truths. So chapter 2, verse 1, going down through verse 3, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so you see how the Spirit of God, through what Paul is speaking is pointing to the fact that God has revealed all of his wisdom, all of his knowledge, all of understanding in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The mystery that was previously not disclosed, but has now come to fullest revelation in Christ. And that, by the way, is what Paul means by God's mystery, something that previously had not been fully disclosed, but now is revealed in Christ. And it's revealed for us in Christ, in God's word. 
And it's God's word that is the Spirit's um, gift to reveal these realities to us. And not just God's word in and of itself, but God's word with the intended meaning that God gave it to mean. We know and we understand that Satan himself, the devil, can quote scripture. He can read scripture. He, in essence, did that with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when he said, has God said? And, of course, that's what the devil did when he tempted uh, Jesus himself out in the wilderness. Repeatedly, he said, hasn't God said? Hasn't God said? So it's not just enough to, to hear the scripture, read the scripture. The issue is, what does it mean in what God said? And how do we arrive at that? By studying, by praying, by understanding the intended meaning of the author, both the human author and the divine author, God himself, and striving to understand it all in the context so that we might know the knowledge of his will and his purposes in Christ. Now think about this just by way of application then. And again, this is Paul's request that you might be filled uh, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If that is what we are called to do, if that's what God's passion is for us expressed in Paul's prayer, then it means that we must feed and feast on God's word together. We have to be doing that individually, but doing it together even as we are this morning, as we we come before his word and under his word. Over in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul will say this in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And when he says that, the you there is plural. He doesn't simply mean it's to dwell in us individually richly, though it certainly is, but he means corporately, collectively, as God's people, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, there's a corporate implication of how it is that we grow in being filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding. We hear his word, we read his word, we meditate on his word, we commit his word to memory, we study God's word, and we do that all together. And we seek to speak the truth in love to one another, to be wise, to be careful, to be sensitive, to be alert in how we can come alongside one another and minister to one another, and even just in our singing together. That is so much of God's design and purpose. That even in our singing, we, we teach and we admonish and we're encouraging one another. And by that, the word of Christ is ever more richly dwelling within us. Oh, there's so many other passages where Paul echoes similar thoughts that we as God's people are to ever be filled with all of God's, the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding. One other place we could see this is Romans chapter 12. Listen to what Paul says after he's just spent 11 chapters speaking of and proclaiming and and revealing the great mercies of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and the wonders of salvation in him. Then in chapter 12, he says this, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He goes on to say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern 
what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, beloved, God's will for you, God's will for me, God's will for all of his people is that we would increasingly be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding as he has revealed in his word. That our minds would not be governed, would not be controlled, would not be conformed to the patterns of this world and the philosophies and the ideologies and the values and the priorities of this world, but would ever increasingly be renewed according to God's good and pleasing will in Jesus. And that we would think that way and speak that way and live that way. And that's what he desires for us. And now what's intriguing is to understand that assurance in God's mercies is what ultimately motivates obedience to God's commands. And this is what leads us into Paul's purpose in his prayer. We've heard his request in verse 9, but now in verses 10 to 14, he's going to unpack the reason, the purpose for his request. And it's stated right there at the beginning of verse 10. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In other words, he's saying, here's my one request that you would be filled with the the, the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, that's the introduction of the purpose, of the reason, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And don't miss the vital connection. Again, the, the full understanding, the assurance of all of God's work in Jesus Christ in an increasing way is what is the foundation of proper living, of how we walk. It begins with with how we know who God is and what he has done and given and accomplished in Christ, and that is the basis of how we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In other words, the more that you and I are filled with the knowledge of God's will in Jesus the more you and I will walk worthy in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. Assurance motivates obedience because it's not the obedience of of fear of God's judgment and condemnation because we know that that has been fulfilled in Christ because that's what he's revealed to us in the knowledge of his will. And so we serve him and love him and seek to obey him out of love and out of delight and out of joy and trust and confidence of who he is. Well, this theme of walking worthy, and that's Paul's one reason, his one purpose, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Uh, He speaks of this in many other places. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, a passage where Paul likens his pastoral ministry to that of a father with his child. 
which is a good word to any of us who are fathers of how we are to be proactively seeking to encourage and, and exhort and come alongside our children. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, Paul says this, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so this is a very central theme in Paul's life, and it's a very central focus and passion of God as manifest through what Paul has written, that as we grow in the knowledge of God's will, that we concurrently would walk worthy of the Lord and live a life pleasing to him. And those two thoughts really go together. The one kind of expands the other. We walk worthy so as to please the Lord, so as to please the Lord Jesus. And the sense of walking here, beloved, is all-encompassing of our entire life. It's all-encompassing of our entire life. It means our entire pattern of life is to be one of passionately, zealously, exclusively, distinctively, and unquestionably seeking to please the Lord, seeking to walk worthy of the Lord Jesus within the hope of all of the knowledge of his will for us in in Christ and what God has done. It means that every desire we might have, every ambition, every hope, every dream, every relationship, every longing, that all of it is to be governed and controlled by one distinct and dominating priority, namely, how do I walk worthy of the Lord and how do I please the Lord? That is to be the increasing priority for all of us, flowing from our growing knowledge of God's will and provision in Christ. And it means walking joyfully with Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the one who belongs to us and that we know. And so growing in faith, growing in love, growing in hope, and seeking to walk worthy. Now, let me just say this before we see how Paul further unpacks that and gets very specific about what that looks like. And that's what we're going to see in the remainder of verse 10 through verse 14. But let me just make this point emphatically clear. It means that for every single one of us as believers, we are the only ones who can walk worthy in our life. Now, that may seem self-evident, but I know I need to remind myself of that constantly. You can't look at other people, either your peers or either people younger or either people older or whatever it may be, to walk worthy for you. Only you can walk worthy before God and please him. No one else can do that. No one can live your life for you. People can care for you. They can come alongside you. They can pray for you. They can seek to encourage you. They can seek to comfort you. They can seek to exhort and rebuke you when it's needed, but only you can walk worthy. Some of you may remember years ago, there was an old public service announcement, uh, a pu- public service campaign about fighting forest fires, and it had to do, of course, with Smokey the Bear. Some of you remember this. Some of you don't. That's okay. But you remember what the punchline of the, of the ad campaign was? Only you can prevent forest fires. And the point was, 
You're the only one that could be responsible for you. You just do what you need to do. You can't control what anybody else does. Only you can prevent forest fires. And there's an emphasis of an implication for every single one of us. Only you, only I can walk worthy. And we need to be attentive to that. Again, within the hope of all that God's given in Christ. And recognizing we share corporate life, but, but we're the ones who make our decisions. We're the one who decide uh, and, and what goes on in our lives, in our hearts. So what does this worthy, Jesus-pleasing walk look like? Well, in many ways, Paul's entire letter is going to unpack and describe and help reveal what that looks like. But here in his prayer, in verses 10 to 14, he gives us four thumbnail pictures of what a worthy, Jesus-pleasing walk looks like. And we'll only touch on these, but you see them. First of all, it involves bearing fruit in every good work. It involves bearing fruit in every good work. So he says there in the middle of verse 10, just that, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, he's already spoken of bearing fruit uh, up in verse 6 when he's rejoicing and thanking God for the evidences of God's grace that he sees among the Colossians. And in essence, what's implied is he's saying, just continue to keep doing that. Don't go off track. Keep bearing more fruit, good fruit. And it's good fruit because it's fruit that flows from the work of God's grace and mercy and and salvation and redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not doing good works out of an effort to try to please God or to try to win his favor or somehow make good all the wicked sin in our lives. It's rather receiving all of God's mercy, grace, and blessings in Jesus and then working in light of that. Paul says this very similar thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Some of you are familiar with this. He says, by grace it is, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, but it's the result of work. Gosh, I'm totally mixed up here. Let me just read it. I'm, 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 I'm distorting it here. I don't want to do that. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. I mean, that's crystal clear. It's all God's work. It's a gift of his grace. And then he goes on in verse 10, and he says, For we are his workmanship, created created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the first evidence, the first characteristic of, of living a life worthy of the Lord Jesus and pleasing him is to bear fruit in every good work. It's comprehensive. It's all of life. It's not just this good deed or that good deed. It's our entire life is to be an expression of, of, of these good works. And so this means obedience. This means knowing and obeying God's commands in all the spheres of life that God has put us. In, in our home, in the workplace, in our neighborhood, in the church. And, and again, Paul's going to get into a lot of those detailed specific matters as the letter goes on. But it means that there's a heart that says, God, I want to obey you. I want to trust you and do what you've called me to do. And so I want to be bearing fruit in every good work. Well, the second characteristic, the second mark of a worthy walk we see is increasing in the knowledge of God. And again, there in verse 10, that's exactly what Paul says and increasing in the knowledge of God. That it is normal for Christians to be growing 
in our knowledge of God, increasing. And this means, and don't miss this important distinction, this important focus. It's not just knowing the Bible. It's not just knowing theology. It's not just knowing about God. It's knowing him, growing in relationship with him, in the fullness of his triune glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That will be a lifelong pursuit as we continue to grow in the knowledge of God through his word, but he intends us to do so. And this all plays together, of course, with bearing fruit in every good work. And, of course, all these characteristics coexist and should be increasingly prominent in a life seeking to walk worthy and pleasing the Lord on the foundation of the knowledge of his will. And so we're to be bearing fruit in every good work. We're to be increasing in the knowledge of God, which implies, among other things, there is to be a teachability about us, a disposition that says, I don't know everything, a recognition that acknowledges maybe my way is not the best way, and maybe I really do need to understand God's word and make sure I'm rightly interpreting God's word, make sure I'm rightly applying God's word. Again, that's what so much of the ministry of the body is all about. We help one another in that. But it means there's a teachable disposition. There's a teachable disposition to increase in the knowledge of God. Well, then he goes on with the third marker, the third characteristic, being strengthened with God's power. So look at verse 11 being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. This is pretty self-obvious. It means depending on God and his glorious might and power to be faithful and to persevere in what he has called us to. It's recognizing that we don't have the power, we don't have the strength, in and of ourselves to do what God calls us to do. And every single one of us know and understand what this is like. If we're believers, you, you, you know and understand what it's like to have a sense of, okay, I see what God wants me to do. I know what God wants me to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to witness. I'm going to obey. I'm going to whatever it may be. I'm going to do it. And we start, and there's opposition, and it gets difficult. And what do we do? We just nosedive. We crash, we burn, we fall. Why? Because it's hard. And it's very painful. And the truth of the matter is, the Christian life is impossible for us to live apart from the supply of God's mighty, glorious power and strength. And so there's a sense of dependence that should be increasingly evident. Obedience, teachability, and dependence in being strengthened with God's power according to his glorious might. And see how Paul specifies that for all endurance and patience. Now, it's interesting. Those two words that are used there seem likely to refer both enduring in the midst of hard, difficult, painful circumstances, as well as being patient when you encounter hard, difficult, painful people. Now, I know this may be theory, theory for most of you, but I have experienced times 
occasionally where there are people that are just hard, and I know that I'm very hard in people's lives at times. Probably all of you could say amen. We're enduring right now. Please. Um, I get that. But all of us have that, don't we? And to persevere in God's purposes, we have to have his power. And the fruit of that is manifest in trusting him, depending upon him, and relying upon him. Paul will make reference to this even as he writes the Colossians. Look down at the end of chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. He says, Him, Jesus Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Then he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The fruit of God's power at work in our life is manifest in endurance in the midst of difficult circumstances and patience in dealing with difficult people. And we all know and understand that. Well, there's a fourth characteristic that Paul speaks of, verses 12 to 14, and it's giving thanks with joy. Giving thanks with joy. Now, there's a little bit of debate there at the end of verse 11 when he says, with joy, whether or not not that best applies to what precedes or to what follows. Truth is, it kind of applies to everything. Uh, But it seems most likely grammatically he's, he's putting the emphasis on giving thanks with joy. Giving thanks with joy. He says, to God the Father. And then he goes on to speak about why. Thanksgiving joyfully should be overflowing from God's people because the Father is the one who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now those phrases are just packed with with biblical, theological, life-giving weight and glory. But you get the sense of it, right? We ought to be overflowing with joyful thanks to the Father because the Father is the one who has qualified us. He has provided for us. He is the one who has done it in and through the Lord Jesus Christ to bring us into this inheritance of the saints of light. He saved us. He's he's rescued us. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, of evil and wickedness and sin and Satan and judgment that we were enslaved to before God saved us and delivered us. And he's brought us into, he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, to the kingdom of the son of his love is how it literally reads in the original language. And, And the emphasis is there is that we are brought from a world of hate into the kingdom of his holy love, manifest in his son, and that that is our new identity. And it's in him, in Jesus, his son, in whom we have redemption. That's the language of deliverance from slavery. That's the language of deliverance from bondage. And we have that redemption in him, the forgiveness of sin. Sin, beloved, is our biggest problem. It's always our biggest problem. Every other issue in our life, whatever it may be, in one way or another, ties back to the issue of our sin. And what's going to be done about our sin? Well, God and God alone has provided the remedy for sin. And this is all part of God's will in Christ. 
Now, in a few weeks, when we move on in Colossians chapter 1, Pastor Tim is going to be preaching the next couple of Lord's Day. Um, but when we come back to Colossians 1 in a few weeks, we're going to pick it up in verse 15, but we're going to segue with these statements uh, in verses 12 to 14. Because essentially, as Paul is reflecting on his own joyful thanksgiving to God, and he's already expressed that thanks earlier in chapter 1, and he'll say a lot more about thanksgiving throughout his letter But as he thinks about what the Father has done and the salvation that the Father has provided and the deliverance and the hope and the forgiveness of sins, all he can do is break out in song. And essentially, verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1 are just that. They're a hymn. They're a hymn. And we'll see that more fully. But this is why there's to be massive, joyful thanksgiving to God. And what that means for us is humility. Humility that recognizes everything we have in Christ, every blessing that we have in Christ, every every, everything that we have in Christ. Salvation is not because of anything in us, but it's because of everything in God. And you only joyfully give thanks when you realize that you are an impoverished sinner who deserves wrath. And yet you've been brought into the fullest, most generous, richest spiritual blessings of God in Christ for all eternity. And so it should make us humble and giving thanks with joy. So again, just in a thumbnail sense, these are the sketches of what a worthy walk in pleasing the Lord Jesus looks like. That we're increasingly bearing fruit in every good work. There's obedience that we're increasing in the knowledge of God. There's a teachability and eagerness to know God and walk with God. We're being strengthened with God's power. There's a deepening dependence upon Him, a, a looking away from ourselves and looking to Him. And there's a deepening of giving thanks with joy. As we grow in the knowledge of His will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, we realize ever more fully and we grow in our assurance. It just provokes and intensifies our joyful thanksgiving. And so, beloved, this is why we see, even as Paul prays for the Colossians, tells them how he's praying, that godly prayer passionately seeks God's will for God's people. It passionately longs for and labors for God's people to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding as he's revealed in his word. And it does so because it hopes and it longs for and it labors for God's people to walk worthy of and to please the Lord Jesus Christ. So even as you think about your own life, my dear brothers and sisters, do you pray this way for yourself? Do you pray this way for your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is what God desires of us. And as I close, I just want to emphasize one more thing from Paul's example. And it's this. Paul prays this way constantly, unceasingly. Remember what he said in verse 3 when he says, We always thank God. And then again in verse 9, he says, We have not ceased to pray for you. And why does Paul pray constantly? Why does he pray unceasingly? Because constant needs require constant supply. Constant needs require constant supply. 
Paul's giving thanks to God for what he sees of the work of God and the lives of God's people in Colossae, but he knows that there are dangers that they face. And again, this forms and informs the body of the things that he goes on to write about. So he's burdened for them to continue to be growing because constant needs require constant supply. You and I constantly need air to breathe, don't we? We constantly need food to eat and, and, and liquid to drink. We constantly need sleep. If we go without any of those things for very long, it affects us and, of course, can even affect us to the point of death. Constant needs require constant supply. And in God's wisdom and goodness and grace, he has made us to be constantly dependent upon him, to be constantly needing to grow in the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and and, and spiritual wisdom and understanding and to be walking worthy. But he so richly and abundantly supplies as we seek him and as we trust him and as we seek to encourage and love and care for one another in that pursuit as well. So we see that godly thanksgiving magnifies and multiplies the gospel power of the triune God and godly prayer passionately seeks God's will for God's people. And again, as those things are growing and deepening in us, what it issues forth in, among other things, is, is songs of praise and adoration to God, which is exactly what Paul does in verses 15 to 20. And we'll pick it up there in a few weeks. For now, let me lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have fully revealed all that you have chosen to related to the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, all of your saving and redeeming work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that in so revealing all of your purposes and glory in Christ, that he is absolutely supreme, he is absolutely sufficient, and and Lord, that you would have us continually to trust only in you through him and by the power of your spirit, and that we might walk worthy and seek to please the Lord, seek to please Jesus in all of the ways in which you have revealed. So, Father, would you please help those things to be true in our own lives? If there are any who are not assured of their standing before you in Christ, who are perhaps have never repented from their sin and and come to know the forgiveness of their sin through faith in Christ, would even today be the day of salvation in which you draw them to yourself. Lord, we thank you for your word and trust you to use it as you would see fit to bear the fruit in our lives that you desire. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.